Section 4 of Whispering Tunnels by Stephen Backby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Part 4. Cresson, in the cafe that evening, was careful that Debray did not discover his presence. His table was screened by a latticework of vines, and it was behind this that the American saw his uniformed quarry swagger in. When Debray made his exit, the American trailed behind him like a wraith from the boulevards to the narrower streets of the Latin Quarter. He saw the Alsatian light a cigarette and then enter a gray stone apartment building. Crescent arrived at the entrance just as his quarry stepped into the lift. The Louisianan darted softly to a stairway behind the shaft and crouched against the wall where he could command a view of the hall. Twenty minutes elapsed when the silence was broken by the horror of the lift machinery. He heard the car descending and voices, a man's gruff tones and the modulated ones of a woman, persons bound for a theater or promenade, Cresson conjectured, for he could not see the occupants. The car grounded with a grating sound, the gates opened, then a girl clad in deepest jet stepped from the car, followed by Debray. The sight of her features made Cresson gasp. It was the original of the photograph, only more beautiful, more ethereal, in actual reality. A shadow of sadness shone from the depths of blue-violet eyes. She was slender, yet molded with the grace of a statue. Her voice was musical in its soft, lilting tone. To Cresson, standing there, she seemed a vision of gold and white. A painting stepped from its frame, endowed with life. Something in her bearing, a certain reserve, convinced Cresson that this fair girl tolerated the Alsatian's air of proprietorship because of some vital reason. Why did she even appear on terms of friendship with the accuser of her brother? What could she mean to him? These were the questions that the American then and there determined would be answered. He waited until they had gone before emerging from his place of observation, and then returned to his quarters, elated. He, at least, had found the Chamons. Little John and Cresson decided that no time should be lost in calling upon the family. Accordingly, the next morning, the two stopped before the door of a fourth-floor apartment in the building. Cresson rang the bell. The door opened, and a tall, stately woman, whose snowy hair resembled a coronet, faced them. "'Madame Chamon?' asked Cresson with deference. "'It is Madame Chamon,' she replied. "'Do you wish to see me?' "'Yes, Madame,' Cresson replied. "'If it would not be an intrusion, I wish to introduce myself as Miles Cresson.' former captain of French artillery. I doubt that you have ever heard of me, but your son and I... Monsieur Cresson? she exclaimed in wonder and emotion. The same that my dear Jules wrote me of so many, many times? Oh, monsieur, I cannot be, and yet it must be. Will you not enter my poor dwelling? Your dear messieurs are most welcome. This, madame, said the Louisianan, indicating his companion, is Dr. Arthur Littlejohn, who served France and her allies with distinction in the hour of need. He knows of Jules. The scientist bowed gallantly over Madame Chamon's extended hand, and the three moved inside. The elderly woman conducted her visitors into a small living room. The two Americans took chairs facing her when she had become seated. A slight rustle in the entrance caused them to turn in the direction of the sound. Cresson beheld in the doorway the golden girl of the night before, and Little John beheld the original of the portrait. 
The two quickly rose as she entered the room and stood beside her mother. There was a surge of admiration within the breasts of both Cresson and Little John, for the contrast of types was indeed one of noble loveliness. My daughter, Mademoiselle Chamon, said the elder woman as she introduced the visitors. The girl responded gracefully, extending an impulsive hand to each of the men in turn. There was an aristocracy of breeding in her poise and in her features, from the gold of her hair to the delicate uptilt of her chin. I feel that I have known you always, Monsieur Croissant, she said. Dear Jules spoke of you so often. Ah, oh, Monsieur, you are his best friend. Her eyes filled with tears, and her hands betrayed her intense struggle to hide the tumult of emotion. Cresson told the story of his search, careful to make no reference to happenings in Fort Vaux, nor of his visit to the Invalide. His letter seemed to break off suddenly, the Louisianan concluded, and I never heard from him again. No one seems to know just what happened to Jules after the Germans captured Fort Vaux. Madame Chamont was no longer able to keep back the tears. It was tragic to behold the grief of these two gentlewomen in their struggle for composure. At length, with an effort, Madame Chamont spoke. You know, she said, that he was accused of delivering information to the enemy, which resulted in the capture of the fortress. Accused of selling La Belle France, his country, to the Germans. Accused, I say, vilely and falsely of being a traitor. Believe me, messieurs, when I say that my fine, noble Jules could never be guilty of that. He died fighting for France. I feel it. And oh, if I could but clear his name, I would willingly lay down my life. You have had much to bear, said Cresson gravely, and both Dr. Littlejohn and I are anxious to clear the name of Jules Chamont. Of course, seven years have passed since the enemy captured Fort Vaux, and time may have destroyed the proof we seek. We are determined, however, to leave nothing undone toward clearing up the mystery and restoring your estate. Oh, monsieur, said Madame Chamont earnestly, the estate matters not. It is the honor of my only son that I wish to clear. I did not dream that my Jules had an enemy in the world until Captain de Bray, a man who pretended to be his friend, ruthlessly accused him of treachery. Oh, messieurs, that man! He cares little for the suffering of a mother and a sister. The gratitude will go with you in your quest. The Americans left the apartment, filled with a deep sympathy for both mother and daughter, planning speed in their search. In the two weeks which followed, they were almost daily visitors, and so eloquent that, finally, they overcame Madame Chamon's objection to appearing in quiet portions of the boulevards. The four would steal away to quaint restaurants and theaters off the beaten track. Dr. Littlejohn left for Moncourt after winding up pressing scientific reports in Paris. He promised to wire Cresson in case there were developments in his plan, parts of which he declined to reveal. He merely asked the younger man to hold himself in readiness should he be needed. I should like merely to look over the ground in my own way, he told Cresson on departure. When my investigation carries me inside the fort, I shall call for you. In the meantime, address me at the inn. A week after the doctor had gone, Cresson sat alone with Audrey Chamon in the Luxembourg, listening in stunned silence while she told him of her engagement to Captain de Bray. It is for mother's sake alone, she said sadly, that I have promised to what this man. Won't you believe me, my dear friend, when I tell you that it is I who make this sacrifice? She turned appealingly to the southerner, who was plainly perplexed. 
Do you love him, mademoiselle? asked Crescent earnestly. I cannot believe that you do, nor do I understand your reason for marriage with the accuser of your brother. Surely your mother does not wish this. Be frank with me, Audrey. Crescent was unaware that he had addressed her by her first name. She toyed with her handkerchief in confusion. My friend, I despise him, she said feelingly. Yet I have made mother believe that I love him. It is only because she loves me that she would permit it. Mother is unaware of the bargain. Debray's promise to restore the estate in her name after the ceremony. The wedding is to take place two weeks from today. The bans have been published, and alas, I must go through with it. Crescent now realized the nobleness of her sacrifice, and the thought of it made him turn his head and stare dejectedly at the ground. When he glanced again in her direction, Audrey was weeping softly, bitterly, her whole body shaken with emotion. The sight aroused in him that tender sympathy that all men have for distressed womankind. He longed to take her into his arms, to comfort her as he would a child. Yet he restrained the impulse, knowing the utter futility of it. Both attempted to hide the turmoil in their hearts by affecting a mask of gaiety on the return home, succeeding most miserably. Crescent reached his study in a state of dejection. He turned the key slowly in the lock and stopped suddenly. Beneath the door was the yellowed edge of a telegram, delivered in his absence. He stooped to pick it up and saw that it was from Little John. It read, Come, expect you, Moncourt, tomorrow. That was all, but it was enough to busy the southerner with the packing of his bag. End of Part 4